arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Two American scientists are lost in the swirling maze of past and future ages during the first experiments on America's greatest and most secret project, the Time Tunnel. Alas, the Time Tunnel only lasted one season. The theme song, which you will hear again at the end of this podcast, was composed by Johnny Williams, a.k.a. John Williams. Awards were given for individual cinematography and special effects, but the history and the series playbook was slightly askew. My name is Robert P. Fitton, and I must have been one of those 10 viewers who watched this show. I love the idea of the tunnel, although the project was a little out there and required a whole bunch of suspension of disbelief. Tunnels later for me became wormholes. What you'll listen to in episode 2 is a tunnel, yes. It is a huge tunnel of unknown energy and substance sent from future humans back to Andy Reese. I have also immersed myself in the era where Andy is sent. Any errors from the era, let me know. There is one problem when Andy soars back to 1939, and it's a big one. You'll see it. Episode 2 of I Have Seen the Future begins now. I have seen the future. Chapter 6. Once the dome girders split and separated, the flat disc receptors became silhouetted against the starry sky and the full moon to the south. The wind gusts occasionally ruffled Andy's hair. He located Jupiter's brightening pin dot above and slowly shook his head. Ten minutes ago, Sonya had sent the neutrino beam straight to the Jovian system. She emerged from her lower office. How are you doing? Who knows how long it'll take for them to integrate once they receive the beam. The monkeys will be all over this place real soon. She stood in the center of the lower area. What's it like up top? Andy steadied himself on the receptor tripod. It's windy as hell, but at this height, it's a clear shot without ground interference. There's a problem. The signal is sweeping into deep space because of the tower swaying in the wind. I'll have to manually keep it aligned to Ganymede. Andy's brow remained creased as he again panned the stars. The wind subsided for a time as he traipsed over to the crushed rock surface below the disks. Bright oblong pulses pushed up the thick, transparent receptor rods, curving upward to dozens of white disks. His mind focused on the enclave. Transportation back in time seemed a shaky proposition, but the more immediate problem concerned Jonah and Daniel, possibly alerting the monkeys. He descended the spiral stairs and crossed the lower area. The maintenance tubes in the corridor contained U-shaped breathing canisters he could use if he indeed was taken into the Atis. He strapped two of the small bright blue canisters on each arm and walked back to Sonya. How much breathing time? she asked. Three hours per canister. What if they're wrong about the time? 
Then I'll miss the World's Fair, won't I? It's not funny. There must be other canisters over there somewhere. Not that I'm aware of. I'm afraid I'm stuck with these. What about the signal? Six minutes and the signal will reach present-day Ganymede. I don't know about the 26-year time difference. The red light flashing above the screen caught his attention. Sonia followed him as he raced across the tiles. Jonah Dolce and Daniel near the tower entrance. Lock all portals. Portals are locked, answered the screen. Sonia grabbed his wrist. This is not good. You need to go up top now. Screw them, he said, banging his fist on the console. You really do need to get up top, Andy. He held her shoulders. And you need to exit through the bottom tunnels now. I can't risk the Enclave not locking onto the neutrino beam. I need to keep it steady. Warning. Security breach. Security breach. Again, the light flashed and a warning buzzer reverberated around the upper area. On the screen, Jonah led the others into a lower portal entry at the tower base. He's in here. Damn. Andy, up there now. Communicate through your plugs. Plug to plug and shield it to the outside, he said as he leaned over the console and talked to the screen. Shut down all power systems up here except the emergency lights and the receptor operating systems. Immediately, the upper lights went out and the wall tubes glowed a greenish blue. Good move, she said. That will at least buy us some time. She ran her fingers along his cheek. I'm going up to the booth. He held her hands. I'm hoping they won't hold you accountable for this. My choice. I hope it works. Godspeed, Andy. He kissed her forehead. He clamped his plugs and rushed up the receptor stairs. She waved and then entered the booth. Andy pushed the upper door open again. Her voice cut through the loud and strong wind as he moved up top. Andy, Jonah has entered the tube. Cut the lower power. He ran under the stars with the moon over his right shoulder. Just cut the power. It's not responding. Damn, we have less than five minutes and that fool, Jonah, is going to ruin this. Once in the open area between the receptor discs, he spoke into his plugs. Try this. Send that tube back to the portal. About a half a minute later, her voice vibrated in his plugs. That worked. Good, good. He gazed skyward and traced a trail from the swan overhead and the Big Dipper to the north. He alternated glances to his plug's clock, counting down the signal reaching Ganymede. Beam compensation is working, Andy. He lifted his wrist to his mouth. Keep it steady, Sonya. Good job. You sure you don't want me along? If I could, I would. He waited in the cool, windy air and jumped up and down to keep warm. About a minute later, Sonya's voice shot out of his plugs. Jonah is moving again in the tube. Send him down again. I've tried. He's managed to override it, Andy. Does he have any idea what we're doing up here? I doubt it. We're nearing the three-minute mark until that signal would reach Ganymede. Mark, three minutes. Even with the auxiliary power, that tube is working? Sonya hurried down the stairs and then sprinted for the tube doors. She pounded the side panel and then cheered. What happened? The tube stopped. Thank you. She hurried back inside the booth as Andy's heart pounded. Coming up on Mark, two minutes. 
His eyes darted between the stars as he thought of this man, Herman Geiger, and the radical implications for human history. They had entrusted Andy to figure out how he would keep Geiger away from the 1939 World's Fair. He had studied old files from movies and still photographs. He had memorized the color-coded maps of the exhibits and the sponsors, as well as the magnificent geometric buildings with odd names such as the Futurama, the Trilon, and the Perisphere. The fair was the foremost effort to promote industry and predict the great marvels of the future. A small explosion below shook him from his thoughts. He ran around the receptors as Jonah, trailed by the three men from the chasm, burst through the blasted outside door. Daniel was the last to move inside. With less than two minutes, he ducked behind the support pole. Jonah yelled loudly below, What are you doing up here, Sonia? Sonia stepped from the booth. You blow up the door and come storming up here and you ask me what I'm doing up here? Well, why is the dome open? asked Daniel. I'm getting a combined signal from the Jovian system. Jonah grabbed her arm. Andy almost left his hiding place. Your signal is going out, Sonia. I know all about it. And since when are you running Tolme? she asked. Since you and Andy Reese are no longer Seraph correct. He pushed her up the stairs to the booth. Your little experiment up here is about to come to an abrupt end. Andy's plugs displayed a timer at the one minute mark. Jonah now had a weapon and pressed it against Sonia's head. Daniel passed by them into the booth. Not only did he fear the signal being cut, but he also feared for her life. I will put an end to this shouted Daniel as the signal was deactivated. Andy moved closer to the edge and ducked behind the last receptor. It will be up to the Seraph now how they dispose of your case. Now where is Andy Reese? I have no idea, said Sonia, her voice shaking. You have a choice, said Jonah, raising his finger. You can tell me where Reese is gone or I will loose the Seraph up here. Andy shuffled along the side and bent his knees. I have nothing to say. Then you will be eliminated. Eliminated, she gasped, for not having information? What gives you the right? The seraph give me the right. Jonah grabbed her chin as Andy moved slowly above him. I speak for the judgment of the seraph. Daniel took a step forward. You should listen to him, Sonia. Your life is not worth losing for Andy. Well... Where is he, Sonia? asked Jonah, still gripping her chin. She paused and sneered at Jonah. You can go to hell. Jonah pushed her to the ground. Summon the seraph, Dr. Crutchfield. Daniel nodded and headed over to the screen. Andy leaped through the air and smashed his feet against the doctor's shoulder hard enough to send him over the chairs. Jonah attempted to rush him head on, but Andy swung his heavy boot into Jonah's stomach. Then he pummeled the larger man's head and sent Jonah sprawling back across the black tiles. Jonah remained groggy as the tower began to rumble. Andy steadied himself on the floor and then grabbed Sonia's hand as a pinpoint green glow in deep space intensified as it grew larger. It has to be the Atis. She clutched onto his arm. Andy, bring me with you. I don't know what they've calculated for mass and weight. We, we have no air. An elongated green glow streaked across the darkened sky. They'll kill me back here. You heard, Jonah. 
Jonah shook his head as he sat up. The light streak above him now was an aqua spiral tube expanding downward. Let me reactivate the signal and check the alignment. Then I'll look for more canisters. I'll keep an eye on Jonah and Daniel. She raced up the stairs to the booth, glanced at Daniel on the floor, and then she frantically moved about the console. Andy held out both fists as Jonah stared at him. His eyelids were heavy. Use of your skills is not correct. You are a fool, Andy. Shut up, Jonah. Before we entered the portal, I alerted the Seraph. And when I don't check in, they will leave the cloud and kill you. You can't use your defensive skills against the Seraph. You're bluffing. Jonah laughed and kept taunting him. <laughs> and you will die, just like your sister. Andy swung his leg into Jonah's jaw. Blood rolled out of Jonah's mouth and down his chin. You can't beat them, Andy. You can't. No one can. It's aligned, shouted Sonya from the booth. Another few seconds. The tower shook violently in the brilliant blue glow and circled the receptors. A swirling tornado of light bent into the sky. What the hell is that? asked Jonah. That is the passageway back in time, Jonah, where I'm going back and change the past. And that will be the end of your precious seraph. I'm having trouble holding this in place, Andy, said Sonya. The Atis behemoth slid from the tower and snapped into place. Andy climbed the stairs as the roar shook the receptors. He shielded his eyes in the blue haze as he shuffled across the gritty surface. The towering Atis nearly muted Jonah's yelling. With the Atis about ten meters overhead, Andy, like a magnet to a piece of iron, clutched onto the receptor's supports as he drifted upward. With no warning, the monkeys swept out of Sonya's screen. In the air above her, they formed an orange-red glow that extended to the center of the tower. The field soon formed a ring around Sonya, and the swarm of monkeys took her body upward. Sonya! Sonya! It's all over, Andy! yelled Jonah. You lose! He gazed up the spiraling aqua passageway. Through the remaining sliver, he saw the monkeys flash and Sonya faded from existence. Killers! You killers! The remaining monkeys floated from the booth and spread upward toward him, and then he could no longer grip the corrugated support. Almost instantaneously, his body spun and then catapulted into the Atis's rotating spring-like outer edges. He choked as the air dissipated. A burnt electrical smell permeated the area. In the weightless maelstrom, static electricity crawled over his body. He clawed at the air pack. Before he could release the air, his body rotated upward along a spiral rim hundreds of meters wide. The inner tumultuous rumble shook his body as he forced the pack into his mouth. He inhaled the clean air and closed his eyes to stop the dizziness. Like clashing cymbals and a kettle drum pounding, the overpowering rumble would not stop. He covered his ears as he twisted. The thought of the monkeys eliminating Sonya produced a burgeoning anger. Without her, the Atis never would have remained aligned over the tower. He opened his eyes. A tiny trail of orange beads formed a path several hundred meters below. How would the monkeys survive in here without the cloud if it were the monkeys that were following him? Like electrical power waning during a violent thunderstorm, 
The green Aegis light wavered to blue, and then periods of darkness ensued. An intense cannonade followed each time the outline of the Aegis materialized. He covered his ears again. Nauseated, his arms and legs ached. Occasionally, orange streaks more visible in the dark would bob and weave down the Aegis shaft. Something down there was following him. He pulled out the last air pack and quickly inserted the remaining fresh air mass onto his mouth. Soon he would be out of air. His velocity had climbed to a furious acceleration. The walls of the Aegis flashed brighter, and then darkness pervaded the tunnel. Invading whatever existed only a few dozen meters behind him now seemed impossible. I have seen the future, chapter 7. For 15 minutes he was motionless in a world of dark nothingness. Even the monkeys had vanished. For the first time he sensed a pull at his back as if he were lying down. With his arms spread he felt a solid surface and above him the Aegis tunnel encircled him with a faint luminescence. He still had another 15 minutes of air in the pack. His plugs displayed the transferred data from the Enclave. Bold black and white depictions that were once called newsreels revealed the world of 217 years ago. A president of the former United States spoke in front of a podium. He talked about people being welcomed to the New York World's Fair in 1939. Although he spoke of peace and friendship, there was no mention of accountability for mankind's progress. When the president talked about the eyes of the United States being fixed on the future, and their wagon hitched to a star, Andy could only think of that reference to the future would become the monkeys. All the talk of goodwill and cooperation, as well as progress, meant nothing without reflection and thought about how that progress affected the human race. As he sensed a forward momentum, the second newsreel revealed an amusing banter as the charismatic little mayor of old New York City spoke with a young actor involved in the motion picture industry. Both men were drumming up support for this grand fair in New York. Andy was unsure of the actor's identity or of the young woman actress also talking to the mayor. In the third newsreel, the mayor, LaGuardia, was promoting Hot Dog Day at the World's Fair. Andy had only eaten a hot dog once in his lifetime during a summer retreat. His smile dropped as he turned from his plugs. The interior aqua bands within the Aegis Tunnel were now inundated with a swarm of orange particles pursuing him about 50 or 60 meters back. Andy looked back at his plug screen. He recognized Albert Einstein, who developed the theory of relativity, actually speaking to the World's Fair in 1940. He wondered if Geiger had met Einstein. Again, he checked behind. Maybe some type of field particles trailed him through the Aegis, or maybe the monkeys were out to stop him. Andy cut the plugs. He closed his eyes and was taken by the forces within the Aegis. Perhaps when he arrived at his destination in 1939, the monkeys would be unable to sustain themselves in an open environment. He drifted into a half-sleep and dreaded if he would have enough air to survive the journey. The Aegis flickered and flashed as he tumbled back. The light was more consistent once his forward momentum slowed and then stopped. He opened his eyes to two long parallel lines that traced across a brightening dome above. The outline of the buildings was evident as the sky heightened to a powder blue. 
What was left of the darkness evaporated like dew on the morning grass. He did not see the monkeys. Shadows formed on a cement walk as daylight pierced the sloping awning. An overhead red traffic light flipped to green as a truck engine whined and several antique black cars shifted forward. Engine exhaust infiltrated the disintegrating H's spirals. The traffic edged forward as Andy stood on an uneven cement sidewalk with grass shoots sprouting through the cracks. He removed the air pack and quickly stashed it into a nearby metal trash bin. But as he looked up, an orange streak zigzagged toward a utility pole down the street. A small crack echoed between the buildings and sparks fanned skyward as a narrow black cloud disappeared into the sky. He ran down the sidewalk with several townspeople. Sounds like the Transformer blew, said a little guy in denim overalls. Andy moved ahead of the others who went back to their businesses in town. The smell of an electrical field sparking or imploding filled the air just outside of town. He alternated glances between the main street buildings and then to the top of a creosote line pole. The gray transformer box was blackened with linear lines toward the center. Three glass spheres were blown off the top riggings and lay in the gritty dirt and stubby grass below. He stared at the singed wires off the transformer, but still connected to the main lines. His observation left him with no answers as he started back along the road into town. He wandered down the sidewalk. Somebody was cooking a genuine meal, maybe a steak, as the chug of passing automobile engines resonated off the storefronts. A trail of exhaust spread through the air. The cars were so bulky and laden with metal and chrome. Then he heard the distant drawl of a baseball announcer breaking the warm, humid air near a hardware store's green and white awning ahead. He waddled along the sidewalk and up to a wood veneer floor model radio wedged between glossy red-painted push mowers and enameled wheelbarrows with varnished wood handles. The sun heated his face as he ripped off his plugs from his wrist and tucked them in his pocket. A man in a white shirt and maroon bow tie swept the sidewalk under the awning. Excuse me. The man leaned on a wooden broom handle. He ran his eyes up one side of Andy's aqua-colored Tomy jumpsuit and down the other side. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? Andy studied the wood veneer radio with its knobs and glowing numbered dial. I know this is a crazy question, but where am I? The man yanked out a red handkerchief and dabbed his forehead. Well, let me get this straight. You want to know where you are here in the city, or you want to know what city you're in? Both. What are you, riding the rails or something? You mean, did I arrive by train? No. Andy checked the faraway utility pole. Then he swung his eyes down toward the constant flow of old, bulky automobiles and the loud engines. Men and women strolled along the sidewalks. Some of the men spotted hats and spit-polished shoes. The ladies were formal in their sundresses and spiffy footwear. He spun around. This brand speaking to you from Evansville in Brooklyn, New York, where the cars are taking on the Giants this afternoon. Second baseman Lyman King will lead off for the cars. King is batting 208 to be followed by Stu Martin and Jimmy Brown. You can freely listen to this and the Cardinals can freely play. Well, I need Hornsby. He retired two years ago. Rogers Hornsby, yes, I've heard of him. He was an unbelievable player. Is this 1939? 
and now you want to know what year it is. It's June 5th. The man placed his hand on Andy's shoulder. Mr. Uh, Horton keeps a bottle of moonshine in the cabinet upstairs. You want to sit down and relax, or maybe you've already had a drink. You dress kind of funny. No, no, no. Uh, how far is Hancock from here? 152 miles straight up Highway 17 through corn, corn, and more corn. Andy's mouth hung open. He never thought to ask how he would live in 1939 with no means of support. What he needed was a plan, but his mind was stalled as he studied the brick storefronts. This is incredible. Where's the library? Huh? The library. I need to look something up. The man scrutinized Andy's fatigue boots. What's the matter? Lightweight for work boots. The library is five blocks down your right next to the new post office. You walk to the flag and you've gone too far. Thank you, said Andy, and he extended his hand. He marched his eyes across the wheelbarrows and the push mowers. The store had a homey smell to it. Name's Tom Stanley. Reese, Andy. You take care, Reese, Andy. Come back if you need anything. The transformer through the haze hanging over the long street made his heart thump. The ball game mixed with the click and the grinding of the manual transmissions and sand-crunched pebbles along the sizzling asphalt. A dull melancholy air settled over him like the haze. Only a few hours ago, he had smacked Jonah Dulce to the floor at Tomy as the monkeys later murdered Sonia. Here in 1939, this city's life was slower, with a lack of urgency and, and more freedom than in his own time. He plopped himself down on a wood bench. Two ladies in colorful sunflowery dresses carried huge strapped pocketbooks down the sidewalk. Atop a black fluted metal pedestal, the large clock's arrow hands inched toward noon, and the aroma from a nearby delicatessen wafted in across the street. Dark cars with freestanding headlights and bright chrome radiator grills glistened in the sunlight and were parked in an angle to the curb. Several department stores bordered on the main street, and an overflow of small shops had survived the decade of depression. He had studied the economic calamity on his plugs and was aware that Roosevelt was President of the United States. The wood phone booth near the drugstore across the street reminded him of technology's continuous march toward his own time. His concentration was shaken by a red tractor with oversized tread tires and an empty wood frame wagon in tow. He was ever cognizant that the Enclave the last vestige of humanity, was trying to salvage the basic human values in a future world gone bonkers. He was back here to change history. In the baking sun, he strolled between the storefront's awning shadows. Further down the sidewalk, he could see the flag limp in the heavy air above the post office. Hancock was 152 miles straight down that highway. Directly ahead, the library's tapering slate-capped dormers added a gothic flavor to the brick exterior. Andy plunged through the wavy, rising heat and stepped onto the sidewalk, and then trotted up the library's huge, granite steps. Once inside, he sensed the brutal pressure of a future that did not exist in 1939. Despite this period's imperfections and lack of technological prowess, he felt at ease. It was as if he were inside a simulated window created by the local intelligence in his silo. Spinning metal pedestal fans propelled the scent from hundreds of stacked books. 
translucent burnished yellow shades were positioned halfway down the open windows. Andy crossed the creaky, smooth wood floorboards and stood in line behind a woman at the main desk. Two little kids clung to her faded green polka dot dress as the librarian vigorously stamped black ink onto the manila renewal cards. The curly-haired girl smiled at Andy, giggled, and buried her face in her mother's dress. Thank you, Mrs. Beecham. The woman glanced at Andy, held the books under her arm, and brought the children out the front doorway. Mrs. Beecham raised her dark brows at Andy. Yes, sir. Well, I don't know where to begin, said Andy. How about at the beginning, she asked. I'm looking for some books by a man named Herman Geiger and some information on the New York City World's Fair. She nodded and rounded the wood counter. You'll find the information about the fair in Life magazines in the reference room, along with the other periodicals, of course. She pointed toward a high-ceiling, apricot-walled room with long tables and stacks. Now, Geiger, yes, I'll check the cards for you. Thank you. She tiptoed to several oak filing cabinets positioned between the doors and the first set of pane windows. A slight hunger in his stomach reminded Andy of his inability to pay for a meal. She slid open a long tray filled with tabbed, alphabetized cards, fanned through the cards, and stopped abruptly. Yes, we have several of Mr. Geiger's books here at the library. Mr. Geiger was born on July 22, 1900 in Gutenberg, Germany. Andy pinned the upper library windows. Sir, said Mrs. Beecham. Andy's head snapped back. Oh, I'm sorry. If you will come with me. Sure. She moved her slight frame like a fluttering butterfly through the arched opening and into the next room. At the end of the stack, she raised her index finger to the dewy decimals traced in white ink on the stitched book binding. Smart man, Geiger, but very impatient. Really? She scanned the books halfway down the stacks. Progress in the 20th century, from last year. The Great Technocracy, from 1932. The Ethical Response, from 1927. This book is available both in English and German. And The Future of Man, from 1921, also available in both languages. Well, I appreciate your help. My pleasure. Please be advised that Professor Geiger is the author of many books in the line of Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.G. Wells, or even the Frenchman Jules Verne. I didn't know that. If you have any additional questions, I'll be at the front desk. Thank you. As she pranced back, Andy dragged out four bound books off the wood shelf, but he also removed some of Geiger's novels. Time in the Future, Sojourn to Mars, Ultimate Power on Earth. He tucked the books under his arms and hauled them down to the slate tables under the massive half-moon windows. He pressed his lips and thought about his option as the car raised dust in the parking lot outside. Traveling to Hancock and locating Lucy Appel was his mission, but he wondered if he could go to New York City himself. He tapped his fingernail against his teeth and opened Geiger's book written just last year. A black-and-white photograph of the balding Geiger in a bow-tie and dark suit was smooth behind an onion-skin page. He had a full goatee, held a webbed pipe in his hairy left hand, and his eyes were dark and intense behind wire-rimmed glasses. Yet he had a charming smile, and he checked the bold caption, Professor Herman Geiger. Well, Geiger, they say you're a pivotal point in time, 
Andy turned toward the window and followed the fluttering green leaves in the trees surrounding the parking lot. And it's already summer. I wonder, Professor, if you're still alive or dead at the fair. The concise biography indicated Geiger was indeed born on July 22, 1900, and taught physics and astronomy at the Prussian Academy until 1933. When Hitler came to power in January of that year, Geiger left Germany and settled in Sweden briefly. By 1934, he was teaching at a small college in New York City, extolling a powerful theme called social technocracy. His philosophy stated that he did not want to thwart technology, but live with it and use it prudently. He postulated seven ethics in progress that involved technology that served man. Andy leaned back in the chair and stretched. That would be a switch, you monkeys. Andy was unsure how such a philosophy could erase a history laced with turmoil and social laxity. How can one man change all of history? Without a notebook and paper, he would have to absorb what Geiger wrote in his books. He settled back in the chair and skimmed the pages. As the afternoon progressed, his eyes blurred, and through hunger pangs, he stopped understanding what he read. He pushed the chair back, stood, and walked to the arched window and gripped the white wood frame. Geiger simply wanted people to think about their actions and take responsibility, but the man was also respected by physicists such as Wolfgang Pauli, Max Planck, and Albert Einstein. And he maintained a correspondence with the author, H.G. Wells. The pedestal fan cooled the sweat beads on his forehead as he gazed to the distant horizon. Geiger insisted on people solving problems with unusual solutions. Andy questioned whether Geiger had become anti-progress. Maybe the Enclave didn't fully understand Geiger, or maybe they had other motives. Andy carried the books down the spiral stairs to the reference area. He glanced at the Des Moines Register and then searched the wood shelves for a biographical section. Locating Geiger before he was killed at the fair meant checking his status at Amesbury Union College. He slid out a thick hardcover almanac from 1938 and thumbed through the clean paper pages to a personality section. Past movie stars, presidents, sports heroes, Geiger was listed as an author and was a full professor at Amesbury. He shut the book loud enough to echo throughout the room and then pushed it back through the empty slot in the stack. At the newspaper stack, he stopped and grabbed some recent editions and found a red leather chair next to a small oak table. He opened the pages to drawn black ink advertisements depicting men in sharp, neatly cut suits and women in button-down dresses. Appliances were mammoth and antiquated, but must have appeared advanced to the people of this time. He observed story references to FDR, Clark Gable, Joe DiMaggio, and Adolf Hitler's annexation of the Sudetenland. On each printed page, he checked for pertinent information about the New York City World's Fair, instead found reflections on Neville Chamberlain appeasing Hitler at Munich, Germany last September. Kalaya and the other Enclave members had given him awesome power, but tampering with history and a madman like Hitler seemed beyond his capacity. He gripped the newspaper edges, closed his eyes, and tried to formulate a plan. Working on the Appel farm might allow him to survive in this time and tag along with Lucy Appel to the New York City World's Fair. 
Fashioning that scenario and preventing Geiger's death would require fast talking and luck. He opened his eyes and lifted another newspaper from three days ago. Buried in the back pages was a story describing the numerous national pavilions represented at the fair. The mammoth white ball he had seen on his plugs, the Parisphere, was visible beyond the statues positioned down a long mall. Parisphere was a geodesic dome coated with white stucco and located exactly next to a high, thin pointed Trilon obelisk. Only financial considerations prevented an even larger Parisphere. The article referred to FDR himself having opened the fair in April. Andy's stomach now demanded food and he set down the paper. Without further delay, he would need to find a soup kitchen or a food pantry and have to think about sustaining himself back here. He folded the paper and was about to stand, but another page line about Lucy Appel caught his eye. Local girl wins fair contest. Hancock, Wednesday, April 19, 1939. A local Hancock High senior has won a writing contest sponsored by the New York World's Fair president, Grover Whalen. In a statement released Friday, Whalen declared Lucy Appel, class valedictorian, the winner. Miss Appel was selected from 5,000 nationwide finalists to travel this summer to the New York City World's Fair. Her essay was inspired by the fair's overall theme, The World of Tomorrow, and is entitled How We Face Tomorrow. The fair was constructed on 1,219 acres of a former flushing garbage dump, now features pavilions from 60 countries, dramatic water fountains, and an ever-present alabaster geodesic dome and a pointed obelisk. From her family's farm in Hancock, Miss Appel's father indicated the family may travel to New York City this summer and visit with relatives in New Jersey. Miss Appel will accept the award late in June and received an unlimited admission to the fair for her family. Full printing of Miss Appel's essay is recorded on page 45. Andy unfolded the heavy white newspaper to page 45. With the fan's air currents cooling his arms, he pressed the newspaper onto the slate surface. Cradled between the corn and soybean report from 1938 and a story about municipal improvements was a half-page depiction of Lucy Appel's essay. How We Face Tomorrow by Lucy Appel, Class of 1939 How wonderful it is to live in our time! Surviving hard times not only allows us to see where we have been, but now we can imagine the hope of tomorrow. We are alive at the cusp of great innovations and inventions destined to ease the burdens of mankind. In New York City, men have provided us a glimpse into the future. Did you know that great concrete highways will extend from Atlantic to the Pacific? Thirty years from now, you may step inside your streamlined car in Boston and drive at high speeds along roadways to Los Angeles, California. You need not stop at traffic lights nor wait for pedestrians to cross the street. You can see this at the General Motors Futurama of the New York World's Fair. Our lives will be streamlined. In my kitchen, I will be surrounded by new inventions. Dishes will be washed automatically. Vegetables need not be canned in a time-consuming process, but will be taken simply from the freezer and heated on the stove. A working robot called Electro is already growing in visitors at the fair. Maybe he will sweep the floor for me or change the bed linens. All these innovations will give me more time with my family. 
At night, we will no longer listen to the radio. Strange as it seems, something called television will show us movies on a small screen in our living room. Such a demonstration is already in place at the RCA exhibit at the fair. I will sit with my husband and children and be brought to faraway places. Maybe we'll live in a place called Democracy, although you're supposed to wait a hundred years, according to the people at the fair. They say everyone will march in and sing in unison to the world of tomorrow. How we face tomorrow is critical. I look forward to tomorrow's innovations, but I will always remember what my father has told me since I was a little girl. If it sounds too good to be true, then it probably isn't. My father can be cynical, and I am wide-eyed. I say, let us dream about the future and explore the innovations at the fair, but let us always use what my mother calls common sense. In closing, let me use one more quote. The German philosopher Hermann Geiger captured the essence of what is to come when he said ten years before he fled Nazism's unfulfilled promises, My eyes marvel at the future, but my feet are firmly planted in the past. Lucy Appel, April 19, 1939, Hancock, Iowa. Geiger. Andy fell back in the chair. She read Geiger. That's the link in time. I have seen the future. Chapter 8. Andy was always reassured every time the stars brightened in the evening sky. On this June night in 1939, he leaned against a spreading elm tree less than 50 meters from a gray clapboard parsonage adjacent to a little brick Presbyterian church outside of town. The full moon through the leaves made him smile as he tried to figure the odds of the moon being full in both time periods. He had been fed and given a small room by the Presbyterian church recommended by Mrs. Beecham. In this era, he was amazed at the magnanimous attitude of Reverend Myron B. Santaborn, the pastor. From the open doorway, the pastor's wife, Jane, called for him to come in for coffee and drinks while they listened to the radio. The pastor and his family tuned into a certain frequency in early evenings to a radio announcer called Lowell Thomas, who actually summarized what was happening that day in the United States of America. Andy was handed a bubbling sarsaparilla carbonated drink and sat with Santabon's two oversized, hyper-perfumed daughters on the tiny, flowery sofa. They sipped tea from dainty blue china cups as the broadcast ended. Thomas paused and then spoke clearly. So long until tomorrow. I told you that you would miss Lowell Thomas, said Arnell, the bleach blonde with stringy hair. The reverend twisted the dial on a small black Bakelite radio. Wait, Albert, the local news. Well, okay, Mildred. The Reverend smiled and sat down in his large green leather chair. Cardinals losing in Chicago to the Cubs by a score of 4-1 to one with their only run coming in the ninth. Cards are now at five wins and four losses. The winning pitcher was Gene Lillard and the losing pitcher was Kurt Davis. And now an odd local story. A lineman was seen running down Highway 14 outside of Bennington today, wielding a nine-inch-long fish knife at passing cars. Police confronted the 37-year-old Morris Cotton around 2.30 this afternoon. But while being subdued, Cotton ran into a gully off Highway 14. Sergeant Edward Galvin has been quoted as saying that Cotton had simply disappeared.
Galvin also noted at the time Cotton was repairing a transformer that had burned out above the highway. A similar burnout was observed in downtown Des Moines earlier today, and maybe he related. Andy's stomach tingled, and he tried not to let his imagination overrun his thoughts. He excused himself and headed up to the second-floor room the church had given him. Sleep did not come easily, and he found himself staring out the window as the moon traversed the zodiac. He was convinced the monkeys had entered the power grid. His heart pounded when he imagined the 37-year-old man running down the highway with a knife thrust in the air. Had the monkeys entered his body and destroyed it before retreating back inside the grid? The next morning, after a clean shave, some potatoes and meat hash for breakfast, as well as a short religious service, he set out hitchhiking with a quarter from the reverend in his pocket on Highway 14 leading to Hancock. His eyes stung and he kept checking the telephone and electrical wires strung to the horizon on creosote wooden poles. Around mid-morning, across the heat gradient, he trudged along the open, vast cornfield stretches. A blue sedan stopped outside the city, and an older man and woman, from Des Moines, brought him to the next town. All the way to Duncan, the reports about the Transformers were no longer on the radio. In Duncan, he found a truck driver at a yellow box diner. The bristly, red-bearded man was on his way to Oregon and willing to stop in Hancock. As the truck clattered down the straight highway, the husky driver prattled on about Joe Lewis beating Max Schmeling in one round about a year ago. But Andy dozed in the moist air and tried to form an image of Lucy Appel. Her essay words were both poignant, prescient, and parallel Geiger's thesis. His tentative plan was to pose as a writer, wishing to transcribe Lucy's trip to the New York City World's Fair, but he questioned as they passed the plowed fields if he could really gain the family's confidence. Hancock was at first a series of bumps on the horizon, but soon formed an oasis of buildings in the middle of farmland. Fields radiated outward from rows of brick structures with cars parked diagonally out in front, as in Des Moines. Fear gripped his tense, fatigued body as he stepped down from the truck onto the hot asphalt. Not only did the possibility of the monkeys being back in time unnerve him, but he also had little money and no means to make money. He would not only need to convince Lucy's father of his writing enterprise, but implement a second plan to work on the farm for food and board. Down the tiny main street, a slowly spinning red, white, and blue barber pole extended outward at an angle from a white brick facade. Across the clean window were gold letters shadowed in black. Dominic's Barbershop. In the lower corner, a maroon-printed baseball schedule for the local high school baseball team and a larger, colorful advertisement for a circus traveling through town were stuck with clear tape on the glass near an invitation formally written for the senior class graduation. Out of the cream-colored radio inside, the ubiquitous baseball crowd drifted into the warm air. Andy moved onto the black-and-white tiles, and a strong breeze from the three overhead fans cooled his jersey. Three white knobs were located under a numbered frequency dial on the radio. It was positioned on a marble counter between a bottle of white opaque Brill Cream hair lotion and an adjacent pale green bottle of Wild Root and the electric hair clippers. On one of the side tables was a red banner magazine dated May 1st, 1939 in white letters with a clear black and white picture of a smiling young baseball player named Joe DiMaggio. A Yankees baseball cap was tilted upward on the cover. The barbers and the men waiting for haircuts 
eyed him with suspicion. Within the chrome scissors, a barber with gray hair, dark eyes, and a large nose rapidly snipped a police officer's short gray hair. I'm telling you, Dwayne Piltz came walking in here about an hour ago. We're listening to the game, and wouldn't you know, every time Dwayne got near the radio, the static started. Gas, said the other barber, and they all laughed. Afternoon, said Andy. Afternoon, said the barber. He wore a very light, sweet-smelling cologne. The other barber up front had thick glasses and moved the humming clippers slowly over a teenager's bushy autumn hair. He glanced at Andy, but did not say anything. Andy turned toward the first guy. I'm trying to uh, locate the Appel farm. Just passing through, are you? Asked the police officer. Well, it depends. I'm a writer from New York. The cop sat up quickly and the barber retracted his scissors. I'm the law here, mister. Who are you? Andy stepped back. Andy, Andy Reese. Oh, John has had problems out there and in town. People on his property stalking Lucy. Well, I'm not sure winning this contest was a good thing if people are going to be trespassing, said the barber. He extended his hand to Andy and squeezed. Dom Malzone. The cop continued to stare at Andy. Well, I'm writing a book about Lucy Appel's trip to the New York City World's Fair. Oh, Lucy, smart girl, smart girl, said Dom. Class valedictorian, said the second barber. Everybody likes Lucy. Why? When a stranger comes to town, I want to know why. Oh, Hobart, be quiet, will you? Will you let the man feel welcome? The guy just got into town. He hasn't even been out to John's place. Andy was comfortable with his cover story, but by parodying it, he put himself one step closer to altering history. People intruding on the Appel farm might signal the arrival of the monkeys, and he wondered if they knew about Geiger. One of the magazines on the side tables referred to a story about Hitler's designs on Europe. Well, I read Lucy's essay in the Des Moines paper. You know how many people entered that competition, Mr. Reese? asked Dom. The cop's eyes remained fixed on him. I'll tell you how many. Thousands. Thousands from all over the country they sent their essays to New York City. Right, Phil? Tough competition. She seems to have been influenced by a man named Geiger said Andy. She was influenced by Mavis and John, said Hobart. Lucy is a brain, said the kid in the next chair. John says it's not from his side, said Dom. Good head on her shoulders. How many outs, Dom? asked the other barber. One out. We've won two in a row. You know that Leo DeRocha would aggravate the Almighty himself. So you're really going to write about the World's Fair? asked Dom. I saw in Life magazine about this big round ball the size of a skyscraper. They call it the Big Apple. How the heck do you get money to build something like that? Well, they got dough in New York City, Dom, said Phil. Through his glasses, he pretended to possess extensive knowledge of New York City. The haves and the have-nots. If you're a have, you build a Big Apple. Hobart gawked at Andy as if he had committed a crime. Then Dom turned. President of the fair, this high muckety-muck named Grover Whalen. See, he wrote the letter to Lucy personally. And then he called the register to get the article published, said Phil. Right from New York. Where's the farm? Oh, just outside of town, said Dom. Three miles to the south. Maybe I should call first. Well, John told me. He has his shotgun ready if anybody bothers Lucy, said Hobart. 
He and I have an agreement for me to watch Lucy while she's at the fair. Dom rolled his eyes and then turned to Andy. You can try and call, but you're not going to get that farm. The Pells don't have a phone. John says if you're on the phone, you're not working. Farm work isn't easy, Mr. Reese. People in town here help them with the cost of that trip. Then the fair said they'd pick it up. They all leave next week. Uh, Pell boys and Porky will run the farm. Next week? Andy pressed his lips and turned toward the front window's reverse lettering. He still feared tampering with history. Through his conflicting emotions, he somehow understood Geiger's ability to make people think and take responsibility. Yet change would only result from personal motivation, not the edicts and the rules and regulations of the monkeys. You need a cut? asked Dom as the bushy-haired kid got up and dropped coins into his hand. Who, me? No, the fifty people waiting in line behind you. Andy smiled as Dom rang up the mechanical cash register with large pop-up numbers and an NCR logo. Well, when I'm ready, I'll stop by. Here, read this, said Dom, handing him an advertisement for hairdressing. Brill cream, the perfect hairdressing. Read it. Brill cream never flakes or dries hard in your hair. So it says. And stops dandruff, right, Hobart? Dom, I don't have dandruff. Because you use brill cream. Oh, hogwash. Andy handed the ad back to Dom. When I get settled, I'll, I'll think about it. Okay. Dom grabbed the broom from the paneled sidewall and bent the bristles across the black and white squares. Now John and his boys come in for supplies at the feed and grain on Saturday afternoons. Sunday, everyone else is at the 10 a.m. service. Well, people go to church here, said Hobart from the barber's chair and checking his thinning hair in the large mirror. We ain't city folk. Huh? People can pursue their own ends here in Hancock. He said, pointing. We don't need twisted magazine articles. I'll be watching you, Reese. Yeah, yeah, said Dom. He slapped a towel over Hobart's face, finally squelching his caustic comments. What our chief is trying to say is people have roots here, Andy. Well, I guess they do. Andy gazed through the front window at the sunlit buildings and the window-glazed storefronts. The breeze from fans had cooled his sweaty skin. What about the graduation and her speech? asked Phil. Dom slapped the razor on a strap. Yeah, right. Lucy is the class valedictorian. She's going to give her essay as a speech tonight. The register is sending a reporter down here for it, said Phil. Bright girl, that Lucy, said Dom. The inning ended. More guys left on base. Bullfeathers. Lucy's so bright, why does she have that spoiled brat Brucey Benson as a boyfriend? Asked Hobart from under the towel. Because his father owns half the real estate in this town, said Dom. A shiny black automobile with a blue emblem of a company named Ford on the hood pulled up to one of the diagonal parking spaces across the street. The driver's door slowly opened and a good-looking guy with slick hair and a hook nose stepped outside. He wore pleated pants, a white shirt with suspenders, and a dark tie. A taller man with trim, bristly gray hair and dressed in a brown pinstripe suit got out of the passenger door. He gazed down the sidewalk. Andy wondered about the monkeys invading consciousness. The two men conferred on the sidewalk and continued their conversation as they walked under the store front awnings. Andy saw Virginia registration plates on the Ford. Dom held the razor in his hand. 
Being a writer must bring you all over the place. Yes, sir, he said looking back. You wouldn't believe where I've been. I have seen the future. Chapter 9. Andy thanked the hefty gray-haired lady with the white apron wrapped around her bulging pink-flowered dress. He sidestepped along the bleachers, not on a third ham and cheese sandwich as tingling red punch swished around his mouth. None of the ladies in the high school gym questioned who he was or his liberal food intake. The large black frame Roman numeral clock on the airy blue wall above the bleachers ticked toward 7 p.m. He read through the local newspaper's account of Hancock High School's track team, but his stomach fluttered as he turned the page to more state news. More transformer trouble. Transformer problems along Route 14 have left power authorities baffled. Five utility poles spread over 10 miles have experienced small explosions in their housed transformers. Even more confusing is the surge of orange particles into the air and then back into the Transformers. Local police have reported a similar effect in three murder cases, coincidentally along the same portion of Route 14. Follow-up investigations continue. Orange particles meant the monkeys duplicating themselves within the power grid, but even more dangerous was the possibility they had jumped into the body of the man mentioned on the radio. He set his glasses on the long white tablecloth and walked outside the gymnasium's open doors. A warm breeze hooked upward as the sun hugged the nubby cornstalks and projected a vermilion hue across the open-eared crowd nestled between the school's brick walls and the field. A central aisle led up from a gravel lot bordering Main Street to a green canopy shielding the front gray stage backdrop with a white banner with green letters. Hancock High School, Class of 1939, Verbum Sepiente Est. A scent of fresh flowers sauntered through the warm evening air. Ladies wore colorful dresses, and because of the heat, most men had stripped to white shirts and loosened or removed their wide ties. Suit coats were draped over the wood-slatted folding chairs. Dignitaries and probably teachers sat on the glossy black and gold captain's chairs near a central wood podium decorated in green and white and surrounded by cascading red roses. None of the students were on stage or near the front window's empty chairs. To the right of the stage, in full tan uniform and hat, Hobart from the barbershop gripped his belt and slid his hand back to the holster holding his gun. Andy winced and exhaled just as Hobart eyed him across the audience. The police chief nodded his head, bunched up his lips, and started toward him. What are you doing here, Reese? I like graduations, Hobart. Hey, the bro cream has your hair looking fuller. Oh, yeah? He asked, pretending to check his tie in one of the door windows. Then he turned back to Andy. You know, I knew you was a wise guy the minute I saw you at Dom's. Andy squinted at his arrogance. I told you I'm a writer and I'm here to listen to Lucy Appel's speech. Oh yeah? Tell me what magazines you write for, he said as he put his face right next to Andy's cheek. His breath had a garbage-like quality to it. Life magazine. Well, that's the biggest line of cow dung I've ever heard. Why don't you go shine your badge, Hobart, with bro cream? He opened his bloodshot blue eyes wide. I'm taking you in, 
At that moment, Dom and his barbers and their wives exited the gymnasium. Hobart had removed his handcuffs from his belt. What do you think you're doing, Hobart? asked Dom, smiling at his little blonde-haired wife. His cologne was even stronger than in the barber shop. I have one suspicious character here, Dom. Mr. Reese said he was a writer. Is that how you welcome people to Hancock? Don't tell me how to do my job. Well, somebody should, said Dom's wife, snickering. Dom placed his arm behind Andy and moved him forward. Come on in here, Andy. You can sit with us. Dom, you are an accessory, shouted Hobart from the door. "'Accessory to stupidity,' said his wife. Andy was seated in one of the wood-folding chairs. He talked to Dom about Lucy Appel. She was class valedictorian and thus top in her class. Lucy did this science fair project on how hair grows. Hell, I just cut it. That was the seventh grade,' Andy smiled. "'Yeah, then she did that thing on Marconi,' said his wife. "'We were talking with somebody on the West Coast.' from the top of Henley's grocery store. She outdid herself in high school when she launched that rocket. She got a letter from some professor up in Massachusetts. Guess he's been sending up rockets in New Mexico. And now, that letter from the people at the World's Fear. Can you beat that, Dom? Peggy, she'll outdo herself again. Not if she ain't going to college. Andy leaned over. What do you mean? Well, they, they ain't got the money to send her to college. He folded his arms and faced the stage. Well, that just doesn't seem right. Andy would not recognize Lucy Appel if she crossed the stage right now. He checked the rows of brawny men and hardy women, seated next to their antsy children. A slim lady with perm brown hair and a red dress positioned herself in front of the piano, lifted her fingers to the keys, and set off a rousing serenade of pomp and circumstance. The audience responded with a quick round of applause as boys in green robes and girls in white robes with matching caps and tassels lined up along the brick wall. He was drawn to a taller girl with short straight black hair just below her ears, midnight eyes and a smooth pumpkin face. She fully smiled, her teeth white and young, like a new product just off the assembly line. With her oblong gold earrings, she had the look of a young woman in her twenties. She trotted up the stairs with her back arched and gracefully crossed the stage and sat to the left of the podium. He hit Dom's shoulder. Is that? That's our Lucy. A couple of adults approached her. She stood and shook hands. She again gestured as if she were lecturing the adults. Andy was not sure why he found her so compelling. Perhaps it was her role in the Enclave's history change. His preoccupation was broken by the presence of the two men standing in the sunlight next to the sedan with the Virginia designation parked across the gravel lot. Kalia's warning about the monkeys entering bodies in the newspaper article shook him. When the two men wandered across the gravel lot toward the assembly, Andy retreated into the gym doorway. The two men sat in the back row. Hobart yawned from a chair along the wall as he watched the two men sit down. He combed his hair and then continued chatting with a group of older women. On stage, the dark-eyed Lucy held several pieces of paper. She would occasionally glance down at a burly, brown-haired man with a full mustache, seated between two strapping young men and a thin woman with gold wire-rimmed glasses. The man produced a hearty laugh at some of the local speakers. 
their rolling dialogue extolling the high school and the town hung in the humid summer air. For a few seconds she looked directly at Andy. Her quizzical expression baffled him. He smiled and she briefly returned the smile. Something about her intrigued him and he did not understand why. She glanced over at him again, this time from the corner of her eye. Then she turned toward the older man speaking from the podium. To his right, one of the men from the sedan, a thin man with a hooked nose, wrote vigorously into a three-ring notebook while the older guy studied the stage. Andy thought about questioning them about their presence at the graduation, but the applause prompted him to turn back to the platform. Lucy Appel, her dark hair cut perfectly above her white robe, carried several pieces of white paper across the stage. Her smile was captivating as she approached the oak podium, shuffled her papers, and panned the audience, her eyes resting on him for a mere second. She had a smooth and melodic voice that was sincere yet gentle. Her black eyes swung across the audience. Mr. Cogswell, Mrs. Atherton, councilman and fellow students, my name is Lucy Appel and I've lived 18 years on this planet. Many of you have been here a bit longer, some a lot longer. Chuckles like an aberrant pinball bounced through the crowd. Lucy smiled and pushed back her green and white tassel. Last night, I was outside in the field behind our house, as I have been most every month since I was three years old. Why, you ask? I was out to gaze through my telescope at the full moon. And oh no, I did not fire any of my rockets to the moon although I believe the efforts of Professor Goddard and others will someday bring man to the moon. The talk of going to the moon brought a burst of laughter. No, no, it's true. You can call it a natural curiosity or fascination with something primal. I, however, look at the moon as part of the world of tomorrow, because someday a human being will step on that surface, I don't know about you, but as this world of tomorrow approaches, I want to know how we face tomorrow. I've been most fortunate to win a writing contest offered by the President's Committee of the New York World's Fair. This time the applause shook the assembly, but she raised her palms. No, no, I didn't say that for applause. I think, she said as the ovation diminished, I think the committee and the fair itself is trying to bring this country forward from the depths of the Depression. President Grover Whalen and others have done this by construction on 1,216 acres, a marvelous exhibition that looks to the world of tomorrow. I have seen newsreels of the fair. President Roosevelt realized the importance of the fair by traveling to New York and officially opening the fair to the nation and the world. He said, and I quote, The eyes of the United States are fixed on the future. The world of tomorrow beckons for us all. New innovations will dazzle us, and the convenience of innovation will provide us with outstanding leisure hours, easing the drudgery of the past. But with that convenience and added time will come the greatest challenge of all. Herman Geiger asked us to use prudence within this new social technocracy. Andy turned from the two men in the back row and focused clearly on Lucy in her white robe. 
Professor Geiger believes, unlike the past where boundaries were duly set for all, the future will require us to be, and I quote, the guardians of practicality and morality. The two guys in the back row were also perked up when she mentioned Geiger, and the younger guy continued taking copious notes. What does this mean? Don't we all make our own moral and practical decisions right now? Yes, we do. Let me give you an example. When my mother and father were born, there was no radio, no Jack Benny program or Burns and Allen, and especially no Martians landing in New Jersey. The people laughed. Thank you, Mr. Orson Welles. Last October at the Halloween dance, I believed for a few minutes that Martians were landing in New Jersey because I wanted to believe. What a powerful provider radio is. We have to decide what we believe just as we used to judge a man's word. But drama is more alluring. In the world of tomorrow, it will become increasingly difficult to challenge what is handed to us, not only on the radio, but in an increased ability to travel from place to place on superhighways, leaving the roots of a small town like ours behind. People will have more time, yes. Newer and quicker appliances will accomplish that. But what do we do with all that extra time? Will we become self-indulgent, spoiled little rich kids and never have enough and expect that things will be given to us? These are serious questions, and like Professor Geiger has said, we had better think about them or fall into our future without questioning the ramifications of our own great technology. Lucy turned to the teachers and dignitaries on the platform. Now, I have been asked to read my essay to the President's Committee of the New York World's Fair. Andy noticed the two empty chairs in the back row. The two guys had retreated across the lot. The younger one carried his notebook under his arm as the older man gestured with his hands. Lucy took out another piece of paper as they crossed the street. How we face tomorrow. How wonderful it is to live in our time. Surviving hard times not only allows us to see where we've been, but we can imagine the hope of tomorrow. We are alive at the cusp of great innovations and inventions destined to ease the burdens of mankind. In New York City, men have provided us a glimpse into the future. Did you know that great concrete highways will extend from the Atlantic to the Pacific? Thirty years from now, you will step inside your streamlined car in Boston and drive at high speeds along the roadways to Los Angeles, California. You need not stop at traffic lights or wait for pedestrians to cross the street. You can see this at the General Motors Futurama at the New York World's Fair. Our lives will be streamlined. In my kitchen, I will be surrounded by new inventions. Dishes will be washed automatically. Vegetables need not be canned in a time-consuming process, but will simply be taken from a freezer and heated on the stove. A working robot called Electro is already drawing in visitors at the fair. Maybe he will sweep the floor for me or change the bed linen. 
all of these changes will give me more time with my family. And at night, we'll no longer listen to radio. Strange as it seems, something called television will show us movies on a small screen in our living rooms. Such a demonstration is already in place at the RCA exhibit at the fair. I will sit with my husband and children and be brought to faraway places. Maybe we'll live in a place called Democracy, although you're supposed to wait a hundred years according to the people at the fair. They say everyone will march and sing in unison in the world of tomorrow. But how we face tomorrow is critical. I look forward to tomorrow's innovations, but I will always remember what my father has told me since I was a little girl. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. My father can be cynical, but strong and quick in his judgments. And I am wide-eyed. I say, let us dream about the future and explore the innovations at the fair, but let us always use what my mother calls common sense. In closing, let me use one more quote. The German scientist, philosopher, and writer Hermann Geiger captured the essence of what is to come when he said ten years before he fled Nazism's unfulfilled promises, my eyes marvel at the future, but my feet are firmly planted in the past. Andy's skin erupted with goosebumps as the group stood and the applause rocked the thick air. He alternated glances between Lucy and the men now next to the sedan across the street. Again she turned to him and beamed that same wide smile. Then she returned to her seat on the platform. As the principal introduced the president of the class, Andy slipped along the brick building. What if the monkeys were back here and watching the key players on the timeline? He remained against the brick facade and tried to unravel Lucy's true place on the Enclave's timeline. The two men wandered down the sidewalk and entered a little restaurant with a flashing red open sign in the window. Andy skirted the assembly and reached the sidewalk. He jogged across the street to the car window. Strewn across the front seat was a Washington, D.C. newspaper, Geiger's book on technology in German, and two empty Coke bottles. Other papers with headers from the Bureau of Protection covered the back seat. Andy raised his brow and edged down the street to the restaurant. The man with the strange nose said something to a guy with a white apron and black curly hair. Then the two men headed for the open door at the front entrance. Andy pivoted on the sidewalk and moved diagonally into the side alley. The two men said nothing when they passed him. Andy placed his open palms against the cold bricks and rough mortar and leaned toward the sidewalk. The two men walked past the high school and then disappeared into a grocery store down the street. He darted back to the sidewalk and entered the restaurant. The man in the white apron was pushing some bright yellow scrambled eggs across the sizzling griddle. Excuse me. Yes, sir, he said as he turned. I was supposed to meet two men here. They should be well-dressed. One of the guys has a hook nose. He produced a guttural sound and opened his blue eyes. Those guys? Bad attitude. Bad attitude. Oh? Right. They come in and they ask for butter brat. I said, what the heck is butter brat? 
The older guy says it's on rye or sourdough with one side pasted with butter and the other with cream butter. Then he said he wants sausage, cheese, radishes, pickles, and onions. I told him to get a hamburger, and they walked out. I see what you mean. I think I just changed my mind about meeting them. Thanks. Andy stepped into the late afternoon air. He immediately darted across Main Street and kept his eyes on the slotted, translucent glass windows along a brick storefront. Above was a yellow frame sign with bold red letters for Henley's Grocery Store. He veered back to the school entrance. A few moments later, he was back in the gym and walked to the graduation ceremonies outside. The class president had just finished his speech, but unlike Lucy's grand ovation, he received a tepid response. Lucy raised her brows with a half-smile when he walked back inside. The principal and a couple of older people, perhaps teachers, stood next to a wide table stacked with thin, dark books. Andy again eyed the car as the principal announced the awarding of diplomas. The agent's concern with Geiger elevated the professor's importance in history, and Andy's new awareness of what the Enclave wanted him to accomplish left him shaken. He stood unobtrusively near the smooth bricks at the corner, but was drawn to the stage. Lucy watched each of her fellow students climb the stairs and cross the stage to receive their diplomas. Andy tapped his thumbnail against his teeth as he pondered that, in his era, the technology promised by the New York World's Fair would supersede the dreams of 1939. The individual responsibility proclaimed by Geiger did not exist in the future, but had been subtly blended into a skewed acceptance and a blind faith in new innovations. Lucy and Appel, proclaimed the principal. Lucy stood within the rumble of applause, crossed the stage, and the principal placed the black diploma book in her hand. She waved at the family in the front row and then shook the principal's hand. As she returned to her seat, she glanced at Andy and then sat down. The agents were up back again, holding green glass soda bottles as they lingered behind the audience. For the next ten minutes, they remained like weather-worn statues in a park. As the townspeople fanned themselves with the official graduation programs, the principal finished awarding the diplomas. In the stuffy air, he commenced a monotone ramble about the class of 1939. The agents drifted a few feet along the back wall, and the piano player again moved her fingers across the keys as she began another round of pomp and circumstance. Lucy followed her classmates off the stage. Her family and the rest of the crowd stood within a strong round of applause. She whispered something to the blonde girl next to her and then produced the same wide smile that Andy had found interesting. The class and the audience headed for the gym, but the two men did not leave their position down back. That's right, the seraph, or what Andy calls the monkeys, those highly charged forms of intelligent life created by humans, have followed him back through the ATAS in time. It's a double-edged sword, as 1939 is a stark contrast to the futuristic hell he has left behind. And the monkeys have survived to inhabit electrical space or perhaps even a human body. Andy, in the local library, reads about Professor Geiger and how mankind should survive on individual choice, not by edicts. In the newspaper, he finds a focal point in time. Lucy Appel, a prodigy of sorts, was won a trip to the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. He hitchhikes north to Hancock, Iowa, and Miss Lucy Appel, 
Join me next time as Andy's circumstances and his fighting skills bring him closer to Lucy and her family in their trip to the New York World's Fair. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and I have seen the future. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz.pizzazz.com.